in the 1932 version of the novel, uh, Boris Karloff. Remember Boris Karloff? He starred as Dr. Victor Frankenstein. And, and Dr. Frankenstein somehow was able to harness the, the energy, the electrical energy, and implant it into the non-living to make life. And so he, he builds his creature, different body parts from different corpses he just happened to find, and he builds this thing. And his original goal, actually, was to make the creature uh, handsome and good. But, you know, resources being what they are and all these things, hard times. And so this thing ends up being eight feet tall, and it's just a hideous monster. It's interesting, in the novel and in the shows, the, the creature itself is never named. Uh, now, the population, populace ended up calling him Frankenstein, and so that's kind of been the name that stuck with him. Um, but Frankenstein's creature was just a, a myriad of, of, it was a veritable smorgasbord of humanity. You know, he's just all oh, these different pieces of people. But he was very, very, very dangerous. Uh, when Frankenstein was on the move, nobody w- was safe. He, in the shows, he, he kills, he lurks, he taunts, he takes revenge, he lusts, uh, he, he destroys, he kills, I mean, nobody's safe. Family members of a Frankenstein are not safe. Uh, ultimately, the Frankenstein will kill himself, as he ends up doing in the show. Now, this is, the deal, you say, okay, how in the world is he going to, where, where are we going from here? Okay, this is, I think a lot of Christians have a Frankenstein theology. You know, they'll take a little bit of what they get from some Orthodox deal that John MacArthur will show, give them, and then they'll get something from, some feel-goodism from Joel Olstein, and then a little bit of health-wealth stuff from the TBN crowd, and then they'll throw in a little, you know, counsel from Oprah or Dr. Phil, and then they'll take some from their horoscope says, and something that they heard down at the supermarket the other day, and they'll throw in some common sense from, you know, the National Enquirer, and, and you put all that, mix all that junk together, and voila, that's their theology, that's their their world view and seem to be what seems to be working for people and we'll look at it and we'll say well you know it's not completely biblical but it's mostly biblical and you know I mean, it really doesn't do any harm so what's the problem Frankenstein theology always does harm always 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 let me give you an example it's a popular story you know the story Judges chapter 10 Israel's looking for a king the Ammonites are coming against them and they're getting a little bit nervous because they're outnumbered and they really don't have anyone who can organize this thing and put it together. And the Ammonites are still coming. And so they remember somebody that, that, that used to be one of their own. And this guy had the courage and the strength and the guts and, and he had the, the, the slyness. I bet he could pull this off. But they chased him out of town years earlier to a land called Tob. And he lived there for a while. His name was Jepeth. And so they, they call Japheth and they say, Japheth, will you come back and lead us? And after he negotiates all this thing with him, he says, okay, I'll come back. Now here's the deal with, with Japheth. He grew up in Israel. And so he knew about Yahweh and he understood the law and all that. But then he spent a lot of years in Tob. And Tob was a, a ruthless, lawless, godless sort of place. They, they worshiped demons. Child sacrifice was common. It was just, he just lived in Tob. And so he comes back. And he's getting ready, leads, getting ready to lead Israel into battle, but he's getting a little bit nervous because he's knowing he's outnumbered and all these kind of things. And so he cuts a deal with God. And, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, 
Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Not sure exactly what he's thinking is going to come out of his house, a goat, or who knows what exactly it's going through his mind. But he's probably thinking we're all going to get clobbered by the Ammonites anyway here, so I've got nothing to lose. Well, they go to battle, and guess what? They win. And so they come home, and they're all high-fiving and cheering and excited. And as they get near Japheth's house, what happens? But when Japheth returned to his home at Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And later on, Jephthah keeps his vow. Jephthah knew enough God, Jehovah, Yahweh stuff, to create some problems for himself. He had too much of the, the Tob stuff intermeshed where, where they had the child sacrifice stuff going on. But if, if Jephthah would have known the word better, he would have known a couple of things. He would have known that Yahweh hates child sacrifice. He's never asked for it. It's an abhorrent thing to him. He, 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 he condemns it over and over again. If Jephthah would have known the word better, he would have known that in the law there is a provision for if you make a, a rash vow, you have a provision to get out of it. If he would have just known the word better, he would have been okay. But he had this Frankenstein, partially God's word, partially Tob mixed together. And who pays the price? Well, his daughter. Side point, parents, whenever we have a Frankenstein theology, you know who's going to pay the greatest price on this, don't you? It's our children pay the greatest price on that. Now, ultimately... Japheth's heritage is downed as well. It, it's, it's destroyed. Because Frankenstein theology is always dangerous. Now, here's the issue. Guess who lives in Tob other than Japheth? You and I live in Tob. We live in a, a godless, lawless land where they're willing to make any sacrifice to satisfy their own desires, their own hopes, their own plans. And so we've got some God stuff going on over here, but we live in Tob. And you cannot live in Tob and not have Tob be in you, at least partially. We hear it in the, the, the tones and the attitudes of the newscasters. We've got it in the voices of many of our, our, our teachers and authority figures. It is in the music we listen to. It's in the, the, the games we play, it's on the television, it's in the movies we watch, it's in the commercials, it's in the ambiance of the places we go. We're living, we're swimming in the ocean of Tob. And when you're swimming in the ocean, you cannot not get wet. It gets in you. All to say this, you and I have a Frankenstein theology to an extent. You cannot not have it. It's in you. You've got it. One day if we get to heaven, if you know Christ and you go to heaven, then it'll be eradicated. But until then, you've got it. And you can't kill the Frankenstein. You can't. But according to scripture, you can transform the Frankenstein. R Romans 12, you know this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Yes, yes, yes. I want to be pleasing to God. How can I be pleasing to God? How can I live my life so I'm pleasing to God? Do not, this is how, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's how. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you do that, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's all of God's mind, his thinking, his, his understanding of life. You'll see the world, yourself, others, through God's eyes when your mind is transformed. Now, what God has given you and I is he's given us a tool to transform our mind. It's like a Frankenstein serum. And as long as you're taking that Frankenstein serum... The Frankenstein dwindles. He he gets weaker. But if you're not taking it, then what happens is the Frankenstein within you grows. Now, the wild thing about this is you don't even recognize it. You don't know. But the danger becomes greater and greater and greater. And the serum, of course, is God's word. And so there are a lot of places we could look in Scripture to see how can we combat this? How can we transform this Frankenstein within us? But what we want to look at this morning is a very special portion of Scripture, Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Psalm 19? And just, just so you know, two psalms, there are several that talk about the word of God, but two specifically that do are 19 and 119, so that's easy enough to remember. One of the things that God's word does for us in transforming us is it transforms our understanding of God. This is, this is you're going to have to follow this one a little bit because this one's not as obvious. But it transforms our understanding of God. Because as long as you and I live in Tob, and we do, you and I, our understanding of God is tainted. Uh, Nobody has a perfect view of God. A perfect view of God. Down here, it's just not going to happen. And the more Tob that is in us, the more screwy our view of God ends up being. Psalm 19 Because the word of God transforms our view of God. It starts off with natural revelation in verse 1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. It's the stars, the heavens. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he's pitched a tent for the sun. Now, uh, we've heard a lot of testimonies like this, I think, uh, over the years. Somebody was just outside one night. They were in wherever they're, Alaska, Montana, someplace. And they looked up at night and they saw the stars and they said, I just knew that life was bigger here than just me and my little issues. There had to be a creator who did this. They perhaps go to the ocean or drive through the, the mountains, the Appalachians, in the fall. And they go, this is so, I just know there has to be someone besides me. There has to be a big, there has to be a God. And that's exactly what it says. The heavens, nature declares the glory of God. It does, it does. But that's to an extent all that it really declares. Because as powerful as we see, uh, watch our birth of our own children, or, or we, we see the stars, is as powerful as that is, and that makes us feel 
wow, God is so awesome. But what happens when we look at other parts of nature, tsunamis and droughts and pestilences? What does that tell us about God? Nature can tell us that God is awesome, but it can't really tell us whether or not he's good or bad. It can't really tell us whether or not he's personal. This is the God of the deists. You know, he's big, but we'll never have any kind of relationship with him. He's just far out there someplace. That's all nature does. In verse 1, it said, when it said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the word for God there is Elohim. That's that's a um, big generic word for God. A lot of uh, pagan religions would have that same word, Elohim. It's it's their God. It's God. It's a big God. Um, and that's really all nature tells us about God, is that he's there. He's powerful. He's big. But look in verse 7. And I would suggest that the only reason verses 1 through 6 are there is to let us know that uh, natural revelation is not enough. He's going to talk, he talks about, we didn't have all the verses up there, about the sun. He really goes into spending some time about the sun because the Canaanite religions all worshipped the sun. And so he's saying, oh, the sun is cool, I'm with you, the sun is good, the sun is, wow, the sun. But, verse 7, he says, but the sun's not enough. It's not, life is not all about sunny days. You think, if I just had sunny days, life would be good. No, 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 you're missing it, you're missing it. It's not going to tell you what you need about God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. You see that Lord? Looks like all little capital letters maybe in your Bible. That's, that's the name the name of God, the personal name, Yahweh. You see it twice in verse 7, the statutes of the Lord. You see it twice in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. By the way, the law, the precepts, ordinance, statutes, those are all synonyms for the same thing, the word of God. The fear of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord. Back when, when Moses was, was hanging out in the desert by himself, all the Israelites are still in Egypt, you know, the slave, all the kind of building pyramids, those things. God comes to Moses and says, go get them. And Moses says, when I get there, they're going to say, who sent you? What do I tell them? And God said, tell them this. And then he gives them his personal name, Yahweh, not Elohim. He says, Yahweh. Yeah, 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 powerful, all those things. But Yahweh, that's the name of covenant. That's the name of I love you. That's the name of I'm committed to you. That's the name of I'm personal. I care about you. I'm protecting you. I'm coming because you're hurting. I, I love you. That's the name. And what he's saying here, you draw, draw the, the, put the dots together, is the only way we can understand that God is personal, that he cares for us, that he's faithful, that he loves us, that he redeems us, is through his word. This is, this is real important because we, we live in, in Tob and we take our understanding sometimes of who God is through Tob. And we think, you know, um, we look in the Bible and there's this one thing about God and I don't understand that, forget that one. And there's this one thing and that makes no sense. I, I see it right there, but it makes no sense to me, so I'm cutting that one out as well. And there's this part over here about God and, well, was, boy, if I hold to this one, the guys in Tob are going to give me grief, so I'm not saying anything about this one either. And so we cut and paste and we create a Frankenstein God. God has revealed himself to us, but in his word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this when we, when we do that. He said, If it is I who says who God shall be, I will always find there a false God, 
A God who in some ways corresponds to me, who fits my nature, who is in agreement with me. When we go into the Victor Frankenstein mode and we build our God kind of on the Bible, the good things about God, of course, the things that make us acceptable in church enough, but we incorporate enough of the other stuff in the world to make it more politically correct or to ease us or to make life more convenient for us, we've built a Frankenstein God, a false, false God. Uh, that will never, that will never work because God has given us his word to know him. He tells us, if you search for me, you'll know me when you seek for me with all your heart. The way we know of God is not because of dreams or visions or senses or feelings uh, and all those kind of things God may lead, and those are nice, good things, but why we know who God is is through his word. We pray, you know, show me you. Well, he's saying, no, I've, I've done that. I've done that. Here, go. No, no, no. I don't have time for this, but show me you. He said, no, boy, you, want a, you want a dream? Yeah, that would be nice. Said, no, no, no. I want, I've already showed you me. Take the time. No, I don't take time. I've got the kind of time, God. Just make it easier for me, will you? Uh, God's word transforms our image of God. So, because we're living in Tob, we have an understanding of God that may not be clean. Here's the question. We'll come back to this one at the end. How much time? Forget that question. What is your plan of spending time in God's word to know God? We don't want to spend time in God's word just to know rules. We don't want to spend time in God's word to know uh, where the 12 tribes, where their land part exactly was and how I can figure it. We want to know God's word so that we can know him. That's its purpose. We got a plan for retirement. We got a plan for diet. We got a plan for exercise. We got a plan for. Do you have a plan for being in God? Probably the most important thing about you as we kick into this new year. What's your plan? God's word transforms our understanding. You think you know God? You don't know me too. Not like I want to, not like I can. God's word will transform our understanding. God's word also transforms our character, who we are. Verse 7, when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. By the way, you notice it says the law of the Lord, not laws of the Lord. They're going to talk about plurals in a minute. But here, at the very beginning of the list, it's, it's, uh, the entire word of God is in one sense a law in the fact that it's to be adhered to. It's to have authority over us. So the law of the Lord, it's all of, of the Bible. It says is perfect. That's complete. There's no books missing, regardless of what National Geographic is going to tell you. It is, it is exactly what you need. We think, I'm going through something that the Bible doesn't address. God forgot my specific situation. He did not. In here is everything we need in order to accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. It's all right here. Everything that we need to be who he's called us to be. It's right, it's right here. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. That word reviving is the word transforming. God's word transforms us. It transforms our thinking. Then he just say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that? God's word transforms us. Uh, Tim Keller pointed out, and this is fascinating, he pointed out that there were several ways in which um, when you're living in Tob, you can only think Tobish uh, limitations. 
But God's word allows you and I to get out of tub and to think outside of the confines that the world puts on us. One of the things he mentions is he says, uh, I like this, he says, romantic love. He says, have you ever wondered where romantic love, the concept of it, comes from? We grew up in the States. It was always here. It's always been a part of, of life. No, not so in the history of the world. Romantic love was not like that. You got married. It was a marital. It was a business transaction for specifically to produce offspring for business that your family might continue. Romantic love was not part there. You wanted a sexual relationship. You found a mistress or something. But it was. But even that was not. Where did romantic love come from? According to Keller, eighth and ninth century French poets who were going through the scripture, specifically Song of Solomon, thinking. What is God's plan for a husband and wife? How does he want them to feel towards each other and be towards each other? The whole concept of romantic love comes from the word of God. Christian people developed that. How about um, human rights? Who ended up saying that uh, in, in a world where all the limitations were, it was a caste system. Certain people were at the top of the pecking order. Others were at the bottom of the pecking order. And you were, you were, it was, you were ascribed where you were based on how much money you made or what color your skin was or your education or who your daddy was. It was all, it was all ascribed to you. Who said we are all equal before God? The audacity. Who came up with that? Well, according to Geller, 11th and 12th century theologians looking at the word of God, trying to figure out what it meant to be created in the image of God. They said we're all. Before God, equal. That's a Christian concept. How about philanthropy? You know, it's interesting. Hospitals uh, did not exist at one point other than at wartime to patch up the warriors to send them back in. The the average person did not go to a hospital. There was no such a thing. It wasn't there. But Christians, looking at the life of Jesus and his healing ministry and his compassion and his care for those who are hurting... uh, came up with hospitals. When you would see centuries, when, when, when uh, the great missionary movement in the 1800s, the first buildings that they would build, the missionaries, many of them bought one-way tickets, by the way. They weren't planning on coming back. They would build a hospital. They would build a school. They would build a church. Top three buildings that they would build. You don't find too many hospitals that is, you know, the first hospital of atheism. It wasn't there. It's all saint this, saint that, saint the other thing. There's, there's a... a uh, concept that that came from God. It's based not on making money. It was based on being compassionate and caring. The idea of slavery. When every single culture in the world ascribed to slavery, practiced slavery, who got the idea and how did they get it that this wasn't a good idea? Christians came up with that as they read through the word of of God. The word of God revives our thinking as such that we get, we get stuck thinking tabish. We can't think outside the parameters. But when we're in God's word, suddenly we're, we're free. Uh, you know, uh, the sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, I think my favorite book in the whole series, The Silver Chair, Prince Rillian, if you remember this, if you're a, a Narnia uh, groupie, uh, <laughs> Prince Rillian, his little boy, he he kind of wanders off towards the you know the woods he's not supposed to be by, and tradition says that they saw a a greenish lady. This is a, the lady of the green kirtle. She's a, a witch, and she lures him into the woods. And that was the last anyone ever saw of Rillian. No one ever saw him again. So Aslan, 
sends two of his, Eustace and, and Jill, to go find uh, Prince Rillian. And so in their quest to find him, they come across this older boy who's very nice and polite, but they say there's something wrong with him, though, something wrong in his head. They weren't, weren't sure what it was, but he was nice and polite. And as they talked with him, he defended the, the lady of the green kirtle, the green witch. He said, oh, she was wonderful. And you're misunderstanding her and you're misjudging her. I'm telling you, she's wonderful. She's been so wonderful for me. And then, then this boy says, you know, an example is each midnight... I go into psychotic fits. And um, if it wasn't for the, the green lady, I would be in trouble. She binds me to this silver chair. And as long as I'm in the silver chair, I'm okay. But if I'm ever let out, I turn into this hideous monster that will destroy anybody around. And so both Eustace and Jill start thinking, I wonder if this could be Prince Rillian. And, and so they, they, they say, well, tonight, once you're bound in the chair, you know, we'll hide behind the curtains. We'll sneak out at that point and just kind of watch you, you know, turn into whatever you're going to turn into. And he says, okay, this is a good deal. And he says, but whatever happens, don't let me out. And whenever I say, when I'm, when I'm going crazy, don't let me out. And they said, oh, okay, okay. And so uh, they come, you know, he's, he's locked in the chair. He's, he's banded in. And midnight strikes, and all of a sudden he starts to groan a little bit. And, and Jill and, and Eustace come out. And then it's, they said, it's, it's like he woke up, not that he went psychotic. He, he woke up. And he said, oh, my goodness. And he told them, you guys, I am really in. And the, 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 the green lady, she is a witch, and she has me under her spell. And once, once a day, I, I become clear-headed. But, but please, let me out. If you can let me out right now, then I'll stay really in, and I will be broken from her, her slavery bondage. And they're not sure what to do because he said, don't let me out no matter what I say. And, uh, but then he, he adjures them by Aslan's mane. And so the, the sword that Aslan gave them comes out and they strike the bonds and, and Rillian is out and he's free. And the picture is the sword is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And that's the only thing that can free us from the shackles of the, of the green lady, of, of the witch, of the thinking that, that, is, that we're locked into, that we can't get out of on our own. Not that we want to be trapped into it, but it's the word of God that gives us freedom out. And when we ignore it, then we just stay locked in. We don't even know that we're locked into it. We don't even understand that our thinking is Frankenstein thinking that is dangerous. Uh, but when we're out... It grows amazing. God's word gives us an understanding, transforms our understanding about God. It transforms our character. It grows us. It changes us. It allows us to be. It also transforms our staying power. Our staying power. Um, what would you do if your heart kind of went crazy a little bit? Uh, not that you all have ever been there, but maybe you're tired. You're depressed. You want to throw it all in. You want to just cash it out. Maybe at a certain time, so much stuff is coming at your uh, uh, your senses, your your emotion, your heart that you can't even think straight. You ever have that? You just can't even think straight. How many times have you heard people say, "I don't know what happened. It's kind of went crazy." Whatever. I was not even thinking straight. You weren't even thinking straight. How do you stay fast? At that time, how do you stay strong at that time? 7b says the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, uh, trustworthy, they're dependable. This is what 
the word of God does. It makes wise the simple. The simple is somebody who's naive, who's clueless, who wishes they knew, but they just didn't know, who doesn't understand. The wise in scripture is someone who's making the right decisions about the right things at the right time. God's word will make us folk who make the right decisions about the right things at the right time. Psalm 119, 104. Do we have that? It says, I gain understanding from your precepts. I, I, I have my thinking cleared. I have my, uh, I'm made wise. Uh, therefore, I hate every wrong path. Just look at that for a second. As we're in his word, as we're focusing on his word, what's happening to us? We are starting to hate the things that Tob has been teaching us. We, we didn't know before. We didn't understand. It was just part of our natural inclination. But as we're in God's word, we're beginning to hate it. You know, have you ever, have you ever tasted caviar? You know, I used to work as a, I was a fishmonger, believe it or not. I cut, cut fish for, for a couple of years. And uh, we had several different kinds of caviar in our, in our place. And when our more uh, ritzy clientele would come in, they would buy some of the special Russian beluga caviar. And you know, you've tasted this. It is just awful. It is salty fish eggs is what it is. And you're, it, it's just, you're, you're tasting this stuff going, who in their right mind? This, this is awful. But I'm guessing, I've, it never happened to me, but I'm guessing that if you have it enough, you develop a taste for it. Well, on one level, Tob is our natural default system. We're all sinners, so our heart goes this way. Um, but as we spend time in God's word, and spend time in God's word, and spend time in God's word, we develop a taste for God's word. And we develop a distaste for what we've had uh, with our thinking, with our understanding. I would guess, this is true for me, I'd guess this is true for you, that there's thinking patterns right now that you and I embrace that we don't even think are necessarily wrong. We don't, we don't think anything about them. But the more time we would be in God's word, I'm guessing if God's word is true, it would transform us. It would make us wise and we would begin to hate some of these things that we now embrace. Psalm 119, it's 102. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself have taught me. You love, you gotta love this. You don't meet God through a, uh, hype yourself up into a trance somewhere. You don't meet God by locking yourself up in a cave somewhere for three months. You don't meet God by, you know, working yourself in the spiritual frenzy. You know, you wanna meet God? You meet God right here. I have not departed from your laws for you yourself. Have to, you want to be discipled by, by God the Father? You want to be discipled by Jesus? You want to be discipled by the Holy Spirit? Because you have taught me. He'll do it. But he does it through his word. He transforms us in that, in that regard. Oh, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, Jesus is, the, of course, the perfect model for this. 1,800 verses are attributed to Jesus, 180 of them, he's quoting the Old Testament. So 10% of the words of Jesus are Bible. And Matthew chapter 4, right? First time when Jesus is in his public ministry, he's in the desert being tempted by Satan. He's quoting 
quotes three times from Deuteronomy, uh, three times. We see Jesus with the, the Pharisees, and he's referring to Scripture constantly. It is written, it is written, he says. When he's in conflict with the Sadducees, he says, you err because you don't know the power of God or the word of God or the Scriptures. Jesus, the whole time he's teaching, he's referring to Adam and Jonah and Abraham and David and Zechariah. His scripture is everywhere. When he's in Gethsemane, remember this? And Peter pulls his little sword to try to defend Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't you know? Put that away. Don't you know I could call 10,000 angels who, who would save me? And then he says this. But how would the scripture be fulfilled if I did that? He's, he's on the way, he's on the, on the way to the Via Della Rosa, right? He's taking his cross, he's going up to Calvary, and someone shouts something at him. He turns to the person and he quotes Hosea 10, a, chapter, a verse from Hosea 10. Who's got Hosea 10 memorized? Jesus has got Hosea 10 memorized. He's on the cross, worst time of, I can't, there's no way in the world we can imagine, not just the physical pain, the spiritual pain. And he's quoting, quote from, from Psalm 22. And then after he resurrects, Two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then later that day, different disciples, he says this. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus, if you hit him, literally he spurted scripture. It was, he was inundated. Sometimes we want to be like Jesus. We Well, this is a good place to start, right? I don't want to go down that road. I just want to be kind and nice and stuff. Well, maybe this is the way for us we become kind and nice and stuff. Sanctified is through God, God's word. Now, so let me back. What is your plan? Got to have a plan. If you don't have a plan, you know it's just going to always going to fall. To, intentions, great intentions, but it's going to always fall to the bottom of the list because other stuff just comes up. What's your plan? Let me point one thing out to you that we're starting. The Holy Moses Project. If you noticed in your bulletin, real big in the side there. Um, Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses had taken the Israelites right up to the gate into the Holy Land, and God had said, Moses, you can't go. And so Deuteronomy, not filled with cool stories, but it's really Moses' last will and testament. These guys are getting ready to go into a Tabish kind of area, and he's going to tell them how they can live there. When Jesus, in Matthew 4, is being tempted by the devil, he quotes from what book? Deuteronomy, three times. According to Deuteronomy, whenever Israel had a king, what, did, what was the first order of business of that king? He had to write out by hand, personally, the entire book of Deuteronomy and read it every day. It's commanded. Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the law, what do you think he's talking about? Referring primarily back to Deuteronomy. Do you know Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament more than every other book? I believe that the secret to understanding the Old Testament, at least from Deuteronomy on, is a knowledge of Deuteronomy. If, in fact, to understand the New Testament, you need to have the mind of Jesus and, and the apostles and, and Paul, and their primary book of their Bible was Deuteronomy. That was, that was where they were at. And so as you and I would get grounded there, that would open up 
incredible understanding, insight, hopefully to who God is, our relationship with God, but also to his word. So what the Holy Moses Project is. By the way, this is like Devotions 301, just so you know. This is not five minutes kind of thing. That's where you are, okay, but that's just not, you don't want to sign up for this. Um, This is for five months, and we will meet together as a team, everybody who's participating in this thing. And at that point, you'll get your materials. One of the things you'll get is you'll get a notebook. I don't have that here with me right now, but you'll get a reading guide. And then we'll, we'll, uh, you'll, get, you'll also get a book, the best book on Deuteronomy I've ever read. I know you're wondering how many books on Deuteronomy have you read. Uh, not a lot, but this comes from a lot of, of great recommendations, and it's excellent, excellent. I've gone through this personally in my personal quiet time at least three times. So fascinating stuff. That's where this whole thing comes from. Now, so we're going to meet as a team. You're going to get all this stuff. You will then uh, have four days of reading. You go home. You read the scripture. You read the corresponding part in, in here. You, you work through meditation. I believe meditation is the secret to application. We read the Bible sometimes and we pray and that's it. We go on our way. But it's meditation that puts it in here. If we don't meditate, we, we, it's very hard to apply. So we're going to be working on application. I'll be working that through. It's going to take about 30 minutes a day for four days a week. So it's a, it's a commitment you want, but if, if you're interested in making that one, wonderful. Um, again, it starts at the end of this month. Let me encourage you to sign up on our webpage. And this is why, because it costs 25 bucks, but that's because of this, because the notebook. We're, we're still, we're, church is still taking a hit on it a little bit. Um, but if you can sign up on the webpage, that's ideal. But also, if you don't have uh, internet access, in your bulletin, you notice that your connection card thing that we're going to tear off and collect in just a moment. On the bottom, it says the Holy Moses Project. If you want to do this, now, this is not a, I'm interested in thinking, finding out more. No, this is, yeah, I'm going to do this. Check it off. We will then purchase you the stuff and we'll sign you up. Uh, but that's a great possibility to grow a little bit deeper. Let me, let me close with this. This is probably no man in the history of the Christian church that has been known as uh, a great man of faith more than George Mueller. This is what Mueller says to you and I. This is the counsel he gives us. He says, I would give a few hints to my younger fellow believers. We're a little bit younger than Mueller right now, right? Uh, As to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful. The Bible's not a boring, it's not like the burden. It's a way to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It's absolutely needful. We should read regularly through the scriptures, consecutively, and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, that's the meditation part, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I've been doing this for 47 years. I have read through the whole Bible about 100 times, and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. This is so encouraging to me because George Mueller was not a man of incredible gifts. He had none, I don't think. He just had such a heart for the Lord. He was an average, average, average Joe, but he cared so much for God and God's word, and God did amazing things. D.L. Moody used to say, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man totally committed to him. 
by God's grace, I will be that man. God's word is the avenue to that.